The following sermon is brought to you by Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 1045 a.m. every Sunday morning and 6 o'clock p.m. for our evening service. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. Well, good evening. I'd like to invite you to, to bow with me in prayer. Let's ask for God's blessing as we study His Word. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that Your Word would do its work in our hearts. We pray, Lord, that we would see Christ, see you in your glory, Lord, that we would see your grace and it's just its abundance and its magnificence. We thank you for all that you've given us in Christ and all that we have to praise you for this Lord's day. We ask all this in Christ's name, amen. We're continuing our study on what is Reformation theology. What is Reformation theology? And tonight we are going to look at the sola, sola gratia. Of course, these are Latin words. I'm going to use this whiteboard tonight and channel my inner R.C. Sproul. But sola gratia, of course, sola means alone, and gratia is the Latin word for grace. And to begin with, I'd like to read Ephesians chapter 2. So if you would turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 1 to 9. And be thinking about that word grace as you read this passage. And we're going to go through bits and pieces of this throughout the evening together. But let's just get this passage in our minds and be thinking about what the New Testament defines as grace. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards, toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast." When I began studying the solos, this is, you know, I don't know, 15 years ago when, when I was in college. When I began, might even be longer now, but anyway. But uh, when I began studying the solos, 
sola gratia was the one that got me. In other words, it was the sola that I thought I understood, but then when I began studying it, I realized that I hadn't really understood it at all. And when I understood sola gratia, it it was like I saw the world differently. It was like I had new lenses. It, it, the Bible began to, to, to come alive in, in living color. It, it was a real transformation for me to understand sola gratia, the way that the reformers understood it. And in the same vein, out of all of the solas, this is the most controversial you know, I think you go, you go down the line, people say sola fide. I think most evangelicals would say, yeah, sola fide, faith alone. Solus Christus, of course, Christ alone. No, no works of the law. Uh, sola Scriptura, yes, we're people of the Bible. Sola Deo Gloria, yes, all to the glory of God. We're right there with you. Sola Gratia, when it's explained, we want to say, wait, hold up. Is this true? Is, is it really sola gratia? And you say, well, what's controversial about grace? Well, grace isn't really controversial. It's the grace alone part that's controversial. And it's the, the, it's the sola that makes this controversial. Because what man wants to do is man always wants to contribute something to salvation. That's just our nature. We, yes, I'm not going to argue with the fact that God does his part. Nobody has argued that. Nobody's argued that. But we want to claim something. Yes, but the real reason why I'm walking the streets of gold is because I did this. And sola gratia, the way that the reformers described it, was not just the offer of the cross, but the ability to receive it. You understand that? When I was a kid, when I was a kid, the way that I understood salvation, and this is just my experience, and, and this in many ways is all of our experience, because we don't understand the grace that's working in our lives in the background. But experientially, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. He paid that price in full. And that is offered, correct, to all who believe. And, and I said, well, I believe I'm doing that part, so therefore I should receive the, the grace that's given me. And in a real sense, we all have a responsibility to believe. Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1, there's an obedience of faith. We are, we, we are to command people to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But what the reformers said is that even the ability to believe, faith itself is of grace. So it's not just the offer of the cross that is gratuitous. It's also the ability to receive it. Does that make sense? So there was a, a big controversy 
in the 1520s. Do you all remember the gentleman that we talked about named Erasmus? Erasmus was a Dutch scholar, brilliant mind. He was the one that published the New Testament into the Greek language, towering academic figure. And he wrote a diatribe. He got frustrated with Luther. He got frustrated with the Reformation, and he wrote a diatribe. And basically, the diatribe was a a defense of free will. He said, I'm concerned with what the Reformers are teaching because the Reformers seem to be saying that really salvation, even the, the, this is the touch point, the ability to receive Christ is of grace. And Erasmus said that, that, that it, it, it has to be God does his part and we do our part. And Luther wrote really a, vol- I mean, everything Luther did was epic. I mean, he was just an epic individual. You know, you, you meet those people, you know, some people are just even kill. They're, you know, you can do anything with them. You can go on trips with them. Luther is just, he's in the valley, but then he's, he's, ex, he's on the mountaintop. He's exploding. And Luther just took Erasmus to the woodshed in this book called The Bondage of the Will. And, and Luther said this, look, uh, the will is really not free. The, the human will in its natural state is in bondage to sin and the flesh and the devil. Let me read you a quote from Luther. Listen. He says, the ungodly, he's talking about when the gospel is pronounced, he said, the ungodly does not come even when he hears the word, even when he hears the gospel, unless the Father draws and teaches him inwardly, which he does by pouring out the Spirit. So he says, man in his natural state will not respond to the truth of the gospel unless God draws him inwardly. Now think about Luther. Think about Luther's, we've talked about Luther, I know it's been several months now. But you remember he came into a monastery. You remember he was riding his horse, there was a storm, and he cried out to St. Anne of all people in the middle of the storm, and he said, if you save me, I'll become a monk. And he entered an Augustinian monastery. Now, an Augustinian monastery uh, is in the tradition of who? Augustine. St. Augustine. Aurelius Augustine. Augustine, stay with me here. This, this, this is really fascinating, at least for me. Uh, Augustine. Augustine is one of those towering figures in church history. He, he lived in the latter part of the 4th century and in the beginning of the 5th century. He witnessed the fall of Rome. But really, uh, the theology of the church, the theology of who we are today, many, of, many scholars have said we're a, it's essentially we're a footnote to Augustine. We're all just teaching what Augustine taught regarding Scripture, salvation, uh, all the theologians that have that have come after Augustine have, have really followed in his 
steps because, because Augustine understood the New Testament teaching of the church, salvation. He's just a, a, a giant in the history of the church. So if you go back in time to Augustine's life, and, and Augustine lived in North Africa, but he wrote in Latin. You remember in the Roman Empire, Latin was the, the language of the day, so he was read by really everybody uh, in the Roman world, the Latin-speaking world, and of course, North Africa. Uh, Hippo was where he was, was part of the, the, the Roman Empire. There was a controversy in Augustine's day in which Augustine played the pivotal role in, and the controversy was called the Pelagian Controversy. And it was called the Pelagian Controversy because there, it involved a British monk named Pelagius. So Pelagius was in a monastery somewhere in England, and when he became older, he came to Rome. And essentially, Pelagius had worked out a theology while he was working in England. And let me just give you the three points of his theology. The first point is that man, on his own, can attain perfection. So Pelagius taught that it is a possibility for you to live a perfect life. You can do it. You can do it. In fact, some people have. Some people have. There, there's been perfect people. You, you might not have seen them. You probably haven't encountered them in your family or your friend group, but they exist. There are perfect people out there. That was his first point. Second, there is no original sin. And we're going to talk about this more in a minute. But what, what he meant by that is, is there's really no consequence for Adam's sin that you have to deal with. There's no consequence. When you are born, you start with a blank slate. Your, 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 your judgment is based on your actions and your actions alone. You don't have to worry about the imputation of Adam's sin, condemnation, anything. You, you can do it. And you have the blank slate. You're, you're not judged for anybody else's sin. And then third, man is not in need of inward grace in order to obey God. Grace is not needed to obey. So, he essentially said this. He said, look, if God gives us commands, 
then God must have the expectation for us to be able to fulfill those commands, to, to carry out those commands. He just used that natural logic in forming his theological persuasion. So this gentleman comes to Rome, and in Rome, he sees decadence everywhere. He sees licentiousness everywhere, sexuality everywhere, drunkenness, all sorts of debauchery. And Pelagius basically starts a moral reform movement. And when you listen to self-help gurus, you know, the Stoics and all these guys, you know, it sounds pretty good. You know, all you got to do is just discipline yourself. Just get up a little earlier, work out a little harder. You know, just love people more. Just be a better person. Come on, man, what's wrong with you? Do it. That was Pelagius. He just went around, you can do this. This is what God says. You do it. And, and he gained a big following, and, and people enjoyed his teaching. He was an energetic teacher and all these things. And one day, he heard somebody praying a prayer. And they were praying a prayer that Augustine had taught people. And the prayer went like this. Command what you will and grant what you command. In other words, this is what is being said. God, you command me to do something. You, com- you give me the commands. And then, Lord, grant me the capacity and the strength and the ability to carry it through. Now, obviously, this goes directly against what Pelagius taught, doesn't it? Grace is not needed to obey. Third point. And he's, Pelagius hears this. I mean, it's, you know, just one of those things, you know, he probably has an apoplactic fit. What? You're saying God commands me to do something, but then I need grace in order to carry it out? What type of prayer is that? That's just an excuse to live however you want is essentially what Pelagius said. So Pelagius goes on this campaign, he gets upset. He says, what Augustine is teaching, that is bosh, that you need grace in order to obey the living God when he's given us these commands. That's ridiculous. And that's the controversy. And so Augustine, really, Augustine was not a controversialist, but Augustine responded, and he responded just in wonderful ways, really doing expositions of Romans, Galatians, Corinthians, all sorts of interaction with with the biblical text. And, And just like Luther took Erasmus to the woodshed, Augustine took Pelagius to the woodshed. And this is what Augustine said, and these are Augustine's points. So, Erasing Pelagius here. So Augustine said, one, original sin exists. And we're going to look at that in a minute. It's a thing. It's real. I mean, it's kind of like gravity. You know, you can try to deny it, but you can't get around it because we all die. 
You, you just can't argue with a cemetery. You just can't. So Augustine said, there is such a thing as original sin. Therefore, man's default state Man's default state is rebellion against God. And then third... Therefore, grace is needed to enable man to respond properly to God. So, in order for man to therefore respond, grace is a necessity. Grace is needed. Needed might not even be strong enough a word. Grace is required. Grace is mandated. Grace is crucial. Otherwise, there is no salvation. Let me give you a quote from Augustine. This is just, I just, I, I had so many quotes underlined and, and highlighted. I just picked one. Quote, because we are unable to will unless we are called, and when we will after being called, our will and our running are not sufficient unless God offers strength to those who run and brings them to where he calls. In other words, it doesn't matter how hard you try, doesn't matter how much you will, unless God calls, unless God provides grace, you will not be able to attain what you desire to attain. God must provide grace. Now, in this controversy, who do you think the church sided with, Pelagius or Augustine? Obviously Augustine. Obviously Augustine. Church sided with Augustine. But what happens over time? What happens over time? There's a great stand for truth in Augustine's day, and he wins. He carries the day. But over time, people begin to say, you know, Augustine, that, that, that teaching, just that it's all of grace, it, it's, it's just harsh. You know, it's just, a, it's just a little too harsh for us that we don't contribute anything. I mean, e I mean, surely our faith, we can take credit for that. I mean, surely we can do that. And there was a guy named uh, John Cassian or John Cassianos that came forward and said, well, we shouldn't be where Pelagius was. Obviously, that's heresy. But, but surely we can take credit for just a little bit. And over time, that's where the Roman Catholic Church landed. So you fast forward through the centuries. You know, it's kind of like a plane. If you're off just a little bit, what happens when you fly a thousand miles? You end up way off. So you, you just, John Cassian came along after Augustine and said, well, let's just adjust this a little bit. And by the time you get to the 1500s, people are saying, you are justified, actually, by faith and works, grace and merit. We are ultimately forgiven in the final analysis. Yes, Christ pr provides 
grace, but we need merit. And there are some saints that have done these super works of super irrigation where they have gone over and above and beyond what is necessary in order for them to be saved. And those works are deposited in this treasury of merit that if you go to purgatory, the Pope can, can credit you with those works of, of merit in order for you to exit purgatory and enter into heaven. So this whole system ultimately was compromised, and grace was lost. Calvin, who was also, Calvin studied these guys, just like Luther. Calvin studied Augustine, all of this. And Calvin said this. He said, when you add one work to Christ's work, when you add one work to grace, you functionally negate grace. Get that in your head. That's so important. You add one work to grace, you ultimately end up relying on that one work rather than grace. Here's a direct quote from Calvin. If a person's entire salvation that he has received is attributed to the grace of Christ, there is nothing left for the person to do by which he may help himself. So that, that's sola gratia. Namely, to obtain salvation by his own strength. But our enemies, this is talking about what Rome teaches, our enemies concede that a person is helped to do good by the Holy Spirit in such a way that they nevertheless claim a part for the person. So that was, that was really one of the key issues in the Reformation that the Reformers we're arguing with the Roman Catholics about is the question, can man claim credit for anything in their salvation? And the Roman Catholic priests and teachers said, yes, Christ is his part and we do our part. So with that being said, let me flesh out these points biblically so you can really see what Calvin, Luther, Augustine were arguing for. So the first thing that we really need to see, and, and I've hardly ever heard this taught before, especially in the evangelical church, because this is not a doctrine that warms the heart, really. You know, we're in a motive, we're in an emotive day, and and people want the, the attaboy, the pat on the back, and you know, for for somebody to tell them, you know, you're really a pretty good person. You just need to kind of shine up a few things. That's, that's the message people want to hear. What they don't want to hear is this. The message of original sin. Remember we talked about this is what Augustine said. Original sin exists. This is what Calvin said. This is what Luther said. This is the reality of the world we live in. Original sin exists. So, original sin speaks to the first sin, Adam's sin, and the origin of sin. And this is so important for you to understand, in order for you to understand grace. So, I want you to turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. 
the, the two places where we really see original sin taught in the Scriptures are Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15. When I want you to look at Romans 5, the context is that Paul is talking about assurance of salvation. How can you know that you have salvation? How can you know that you've been saved? And the general argument is this, you're going to die. Anybody argue with that? No, nobody argues with that. The reason you're going to die is because you're in Adam. You're, you're of Adam's race. You're in Adam's line. Sound logic. Now, just as sure as you're, you're dead in Adam, you can be just as sure that you are alive in Christ. You can be just as sure that as, as you are constituted a sinner in Adam, that you are constituted righteous in Christ. So your, your assurance of salvation doesn't depend on you, you working. Your, your salvation depends on whether or not you're in Christ. That's Paul's point in Romans 5. But in that, he's articulating this, this doctrine of original sin. So look at verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. Notice how Paul doesn't even mention Eve. She's not even mentioned. The reason why is because Adam was the, the head of the creation covenant. When God came to Adam in the garden, God gave Adam commands. And Adam was the, the head. He was the representative. You know, uh, if you have a nation state, the king is often representative of the people, isn't he? For example, when David would... would uh, would go into the tabernacle. David would, rep, or the temple, or the, no, it would be the tabernacle. David represented the people. When he would enter into a, a peace treaty with somebody, he represents the people. And that's the idea that Adam was the representative of all of mankind. And Paul says this, that through the one man, through Adam, sin came into the world. And then he says, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. By death, he means not only spiritual death in terms of your soul, but also eternal death in terms of condemnation and judgment. Notice that phrase, because all sinned, that ends verse 12. I used to read that and think, okay, because of Adam, we all sin. That's not what Paul means here. He's saying, in Adam, we are all constituted sinners. We're all sinners because Adam is our representative. He's not talking about our personal sins. He's talking about the fact that we're constituted sinners because of Adam. And therefore, even before we're born, all of mankind is subject to death. That's verse 15. Look at verse 15. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So many die and have died because of the one man's trespass. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15.22, write that verse down. 1 Corinthians 15.22, in Adam, all die. In Adam, all die. 
Yes, of course, there's been exceptions like Elijah, right? Like Enoch. But those are the exceptions, correct? The writer of Hebrews said, it is appointed for all men to die once, and then comes the judgment. There's no reincarnation. There's no you coming back as, as, as a circus ringleader or something like that. You have one life, and then you die, and then comes the judgment. So, in Adam, we are all constituted sinners. We are all judged and deserving of death. And for that reason, every person is born a sinner in Adam. Every person is born with a sin nature. Let me give you a couple references. Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Psalm 58.3, The wicked are estranged from the womb. These who speak lies go astray from birth. So man, because of Adam, is under condemnation, and we are born estranged from God, from the womb. We are sinners deserving of death. And that is true of all of Adam's race. And by the way, there's only one race. One. It's just the human race. And we are all part of it. We all go back to Noah. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And they go back to Adam. We all go back to the one man who constituted us as sinners. Now, because of that, because of that, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write down another word here or another phrase that uh, we need to understand. Because of original sin, the experience of every person is that, and this is a theological phrase, it's a phrase that you need to know, is total depravity. Now, what this means, total depravity, this doesn't mean that you are as bad as you could be. This doesn't mean that everybody's a Hitler or a Pol Pot or a, a Stalin or something like that. That's not what total depravity means. It doesn't mean that you're in the mob or something like that. Total depravity means that Adam's sin has affected the totality of who you are, your body and your soul. And with the soul, your mind and your heart. That's what total depravity means. It, it, it refers to the extent it, in which sin has affected you. Now, sometimes people have called and said, because total depravity can be conf confusing, and, and, it, and sometimes people think, well, that means that we're all as bad as we possibly could be. That's not true, because there's common grace. There's laws that are made right down here that prevent people from executing what they wish they could do uh, in, in their corrupt desires. There's laws that keep people in the boundaries that God has made. God has made families that, Lord willing, keep children from becoming full-bent evil as, as they could go. But sin has impacted and affected all of who 
we are. And wouldn't it be something if we could remember that as a society and a culture? Because we spend millions of dollars on rehab and education and rehabilitation, thinking that we can throw money at this and fix the problem. Isn't that where our country is today? That we can you know, just throw millions of dollars at an education system and expect for the, the behavior to be fixed of these kids? It hasn't worked. It hasn't worked for 100 years. And, and the issue is, is that we have lost the understanding of who we are in Adam. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All. We are all sinners. All of us. We all totally have been affected by the fall in Adam's sin. So our natural state is that of depravity. I want you to turn back to Ephesians chapter 2, where we, where we began this evening. Ephesians chapter 2. And notice the stark way that Paul describes this situation that we're in. I mean, this is, you can't get any more extreme than this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. That word necros, it means dead. You ever see Monty Python in the Holy Grail? You know, he's pushing the cart, the wagon, he's pushing the wagon through the little city, you know, and the guy's like, I'm not quite dead yet, you know. And it hits him on the head, now, now he's dead. Paul means you're dead, dead. You are, your spiritual state, Greek word, Necros, you're dead. And even in the evangelical church, I've heard from, you know, you read all types of people, you're all, you know, that's just kind of a metaphor, you know. You know, spiritually, it's really more that we're just, you know, we're sick. We're on morphine. You know, we're, we're, we're on, we need medication. We need help. But we're, but we're really not, it's not that bad. But no, Paul says, look, you're dead. And he says, this, this, is, this is your life. This is all of our lives pre-Christ. He says, we're dead in trespasses and sins. That's, that's who we are. He says, you, wa- you walked in these. these. This describes the whole pattern of your life, following the course of this world. Talking about Satan's agenda, Satan's ideologies, Satan's passions, that's, who, that's what you're following after. Following the prince of the power of the air, Satan himself. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Here's what this dead life looked like. Verse 3. 
among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Augustine put it like this. He said, in our natural state, we lost our liberty. Paul puts it like this. He says in in Romans chapter 6, verse 20, he says, you were slaves to your sin. Do loss. You are a slave. You serve it. That's not freedom. Sure, we can say we have freedom of choice. In, in a sense, we do. We can do what we want to do, but what we want to do is serve our sin. That is the natural state of who we are. Uh, this is how Paul describes the unregenerate life. This is Galatians chapter 5. He says, this is, this is the, if you want to describe it, Galatians 5, 19, he says, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, things like these. I warn you as I warn you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's that's what the unregenerate person goes after. That's what, and, and here's the thing, listen, that's what we want to do outside of Christ. That's what being dead looks like, is you just serve your flesh, you go after your sin. So that's the general picture. That's who we are in Adam. Now let's look more closely at the specifics If you think about your soul, you have a mind and a heart. With your mind, you think, you rationalize, and with your heart, you love, you feel. And in the mind, let's look at the mind first. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. This is our mind. The natural person, the unbeliever, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Notice just the encompassing way that Paul says that. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Have you ever been in a situation where you were just laughed out of the room because of something that you said was biblical? Is that ever? One time I was praying at a wedding. You know, this is one of the things as a, as a pastor, you know, all your buddies ask you to officiate and pray at their, you know, all that stuff. And I was, I was uh, praying at my friend's wedding reception. So we're, it's after the wedding, we're all, you know, there's several hundred people in this big room. And I prayed that God would bless this couple with children. And people audibly started hysterically laughing in the middle of the prayer. Now, we look at that and you think, wow, that's messed up. That's messed up. But you know what it is? It's the natural man. It's the natural man. Our world says kids are a burden. Our world says, you know, mom's everywhere. Go work a job and throw your kids in the daycare. That's what our world says. 
And so when I prayed for this couple to have children, it's like, oh my goodness, that's, that's like a burden he's praying for them. That's the natural man. The things of God are folly to them. And, and you get that. In evangel- that. That's why evangelism conversations are so hard. You're talking to a dead person. You're talking to someone to whom the message of the cross is foolishness. Isn't that what Paul says? You know, he, he says, look, for Greeks, it's foolishness. For Jews, it's a stumbling block. It's folly to the unbelieving mind. Look at, look at this. Uh, turn to the right to Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. Look at the state of our natural mind, how Paul describes it here. He says, you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. You know, in the Marine Corps, hostiles are those who attack you. And Paul says that that's what our mind is like, pre-conversion. It's not just that it thinks that Christianity is foolish and that the things of God are foolish. It hates them. We're alienated from the, from the things of God. We hate the things of God. And because we think like that, look how it affects our actions. We do evil deeds. You do what you think, you do what you love, and therefore you do evil deeds. One more verse, and we, and we could just keep going through this, because th- this is how the New Testament describes our minds b- before Christ. Ephesians chapter 4, turn to the left to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. Now this I say in testifying the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their, in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice, every kind of impurity. So, in our unconverted state, our heart loves to sin. That has an effect on our minds, and our minds reject the truth. They do not understand the things of God. We think that they are futile, and we are naturally alienated from the life of God. So that's the mind. What about the, the emotive or affective part of our soul, the heart? The heart. Well, you don't need to turn here, but let me just quote to you several verses. Jot these down. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? You know, Disney decision making is follow your heart. How many times have your kids probably heard that from, from some pagan television show? That is the worst advice that you could possibly hear 
and take is follow your heart. Because Calvin said the heart is an idol factory. The heart loves its sin. The heart loves to wander away from God. Solomon says in Proverbs twenty-two fifteen, folly is bound up in the heart of a child. So the heart is sick. The heart is rejecting God. That is the, the nature of the heart. Therefore, and this is, this is the point where we began. This is, this is where we come full circle. So we've seen original sin, total depravity, the effect on the mind and the heart. And what this means is that in regard to the gospel, when you go to a Billy Graham crusade, and I went to one in Houston in 19, I don't know, I guess it was 1989. You go to a Billy Graham crusade, you're there. The gospel's preached. You are preaching to a stadium full of spiritually dead people. You're preaching to a graveyard. In fact, uh, the uh, pastor of Moody Church, Erwin Lutzer. Ever heard Erwin Lutzer on the radio? He used to take his preaching students from, from Moody Bible over to a cemetery in Chicago. And he would say, go ahead, start preaching. Start preaching. Because that is the spiritual state that you are preaching to. It is total inability. You have a mind that hates God. You have a wicked heart. And you are spiritually dead towards God. Therefore, when the gospel is preached... One hundred percent of the time, you reject it. And I'm going to star that because we have to get that. You reject it. We reject it. One hundred percent of the time. That's the bad news. But unless you get the bad news you don't get grace. Now we're full circle. Now go back to Ephesians 1. Sorry, Ephesians 2. Verse 4. Now you have the intervention. But God. But God. This is your story and my story but God, but God, but God. God intervenes. God intervenes. And what God does is He begins to woo and to draw you to the truth. Jesus says in John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. 
and I will raise him up on the last day. We studied at our Shepherd Society meeting on Thursday, Galatians 1.15, where Paul says, but when he who had set me apart before I was born, he called me by his grace. And if you think about what Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he talks about this calling from God. He, uh, he says, 1 Corinthians 1.26, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. And here it is again. But God. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. But God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Now listen to what Paul says. So that no being, human being might boast in the presence of God. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Could that be any more clear? I mean, isn't that amazing? So when I'm talking about the call of God, when Paul's talking about the call of God on your life, he's not talking about the preacher who's up there preaching. He's talking about God's call on your heart. Where all of a sudden, God shines a spotlight into your soul. Where the blinders on your mind are revealed. Where God calls forth into your soul, just as Jesus called forth Lazarus from the dead where God calls forth into your heart and says, live, live. I was talking to somebody this week at our church, and they said, when I, the night that I was born again, I literally walked outside and it seemed like I saw the trees differently. Everything changed. It was like it was the light bulb goes off in the heart. And that's the call of God in your life. And the way that it's experienced is called regeneration, or the new birth, or being born again, or becoming a new creature, or being raised from death to life. That's how the Bible describes it. And God works that regeneration through the power of the Word of God. First Peter 1.23, you are born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed. So as you hear, or listen to, or read the Word of God, not always, but sometimes, God works through the power of the Word to open up your soul and give you life so that you are born again. Now, let me ask you a question. What does a baby contribute to being born? Not a thing. Not a thing. I don't even know what's going on. So, this is something that I learned from R.C. Sproul he said this, this is what you need to understand in terms of the order and why we're saying it's sola gratia, all of grace. And this is, this is a phrase that if you can remember this, it, it'll help things stick in your mind. But it's this, regeneration precedes faith. I remember in my... Uh, early 20s, I was still in the Marine Corps, and Grace Anna's brother, who's also named Grant, we, uh, 
went down to a Ligonier conference in Orlando, and we were up in the balcony, and, and I'll never forget, you know, R.C. Sproul's out there on a, uh, on a, like a ventilator. You know, he's got these oxygen tanks near him, and, uh, and I'll never forget this. He says, if, if you want to understand grace and reform theology, it can really all be summed up in this one phrase, regeneration precedes faith. That when you are born again, that that gives you the power in order to repent and believe. It's not just, oh, I'm going to repent and believe. Yes, we call people to repent and believe. But the power to do that is in the new birth. Unless you are born again, Jesus says, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Has that ever blown your mind before? I mean, wait, what? No, no, no. Unless you're born again, you cannot even see the kingdom of God. Unless God does the work, you can't even see it. You can't understand it. You you can't discern it. It's of grace. It's of grace. It's all of grace. The reason why you believed isn't because you're smarter, more intellectual, more moral. The reason why you believed is but God. You were born again through the imperishable word of God. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. That's grace. It's grace. And when, it, when you get that, you know what the result is? Doxology. Doxology. Why did he save me? I'm not worthy. I'm, I didn't deserve it. Why me? Because of his grace. Because of his mercy. And that leads to his praise. Sola Deo Gloria. And that's where we're going to pick up here in a couple weeks. But grace, grace, grace alone. Controversial, yes, but worth it. Worth it. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are so thankful for this truth of sola gratia that For those in Christ, you intervened, but God, that you shone a light into our heart so that we could be born again and receive the truth, repent of our sins, trust Christ in faith. And Lord, since we understand this truth, we pray pray for those who are lost in our lives. We pray, Lord, that you would intervene in their life like you intervened in our life that they would have that but God moment, that you would regenerate their hearts through the imperishable word of Christ, that you would do your work in their lives, that they would come to know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ so the things of God would no longer be folly to them, but would be delightful. We ask all this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.